particular to God, uh, who He is, trying to, to understand. Today's lesson is titled, The Greatest Sermon. And not that this is the greatest sermon, but we're looking at the greatest sermon in Scripture concerning God. And so most of our focus is going to be on the book of Acts, chapter 17. This is going to be a a different lesson than what you normally hear from me, uh, but hopefully it'll be one that that is helpful to you in some way. Let's begin, first of all, with a question. What is a sermon? What is a sermon? How would you define a sermon? Just by looking for a standard definition, you can look up online and And this is something that you might find a talk on a religious or moral subject, especially one given during a church service and based on a passage from the Bible. That is how we would typically define a sermon. Tom Holland had a good explanation of a sermon in his book, Sermon Design and Delivery. And this is what he had to say about sermons. Sermons are not exhibits to be evaluated by curious, analytical, or critical spectators. Sermons are not feats of oratorical prowess, whereby a preacher seeks to be admired and complimented. Rather, they are public proclamations of God's Word, designed to influence the mind and moral behavior of a group of people. These discourses should inform the ignorant, denounce the moral compromiser, expose false doctrine, inspire the faithful, challenge the indifferent, encourage the despondent, and reveal God's plan of salvation for the human family. Therefore, sermons are designed to accuse to inform, to stir, to convince, to persuade, to reassure, and to present saving truth. That is what a sermon should be. Any and all sermons should measure to this standard. One of the things that we have to understand for those of us that stand in the pulpit on a regular basis, is that any and and all sermons are devoted to this. That it's not about me. It's not about the preacher. And it's also not about the desires of the congregation. There are certain things that, that members of the congregation would expect to hear, would want to hear, but it's not about what the congregation wants to hear so much as what they need to hear. So those of us that preach, we have to remember that it's not about me. I don't preach for the purpose of hearing you tell me that I did a good job. That's not my my reason for preaching. But whenever I step into the pulpit, I preach for the purpose of winning lost souls, to encouraging the wayward. I want to do that each and every time. That I am able. Whenever we preach, 
It is all about God. It is all about God. I have a, a gentleman at Sportscom that, that typically every so often he'll ask me, what did you preach on Sunday? And I'll tell him what I, I preached on. And uh, This last time that he asked me, I said, about God. And he said, about God. Imagine that. That's what we're supposed to preach on. God. So, whenever we look at a sermon, we need to define it by God's standards. A sermon is about God. It is about winning souls. It is about imparting the the plan of salvation. And that is what we need to do when we preach. As preachers, our greatest desire and ambition is to win souls to Christ. The lost, the wayward, And maybe even those simply seeking God. We want to win those souls. The goal of preaching is to present unto the congregation the God of the Bible. The God whom they may not yet know. There are many aspects about God that that even I question that, that I don't really know the answers to. But I know what I need to know. And hopefully I can impart Some of that to you. As we look at a great sermon, just the idea of a great sermon, what would be elements of a great sermon? First of all, that it is Scripture-based. That it is Scripture-saturated. The Word of God itself is powerful. It is a powerful tool. For winning souls to Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I need to see God's word as powerful. Especially as a preacher, I need to understand that God's Word is powerful. If someone is one to Christ, it is not going to be because of of my uh, ability or or even lack thereof of speaking. It's not going to be of something that I said. It's going to be because God's Word pierced their heart. And if it is for any other reason, then it shouldn't be. God's Word is powerful. God's Word is perfectly capable of winning a lost soul. If only we open the Bible. If only we study the Scriptures. When presented, it possesses the power to change lives and hearts. So, an element of a great sermon would be that it is Scripture-based. Miss Nancy has, has told me before, I remember her telling me if, uh, I guess someone else said it, um, but there are those that, that would preach and they leave little room for God to speak. They say so much. And so I tried to take that into account whenever I preach that, that I use more scripture than my own words. God's word is powerful. 
God's word is capable of winning the lost. It is simply my job to present God's word. That is the element or an element of a great sermon. Another element of a great sermon is that it is Christ-centered. Every sermon should draw attention unto Christ. Again, I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. I want to draw attention to God, to His Son, to Jesus Christ, who loves us, who died for us, who lives that we might live, who has gone to prepare a place for us in the home of His Father, I want to draw attention unto Christ so that others might draw nearer to Him as well. Another element of a great sermon is that it is sinner-focused. Sinner, S-I-N-N-E-R. Sinner-focused. It pleads with the sinner to respond to the gospel call. Its intent is to convince, rebuke, and exhort. According to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, that would be an element of a great sermon, is that it is sinner-focused. And it is God-glorifying. Again, attention is drawn to God. It produces the desire within each of us to draw nearer to God, praising and honoring His great name. We do so in our worship. We do so in our prayers. The elements of a great sermon. Scripture based. Christ centered. Center focused. And God glorifying. But there's also something to the sermon giver. I have a book that was given to me a, a It was from a kid's perspective of sitting in a worship service and some of the elements, some of the things that they would experience. And the preacher was in that book referred to as the sermonator. I like that one. The sermonator. We need to look at the sermon giver as well. To some degree. The character of the deliverer must also be considered. And in an effort for someone to, to be one to the gospel. They need to see not only the person speaking the gospel, but someone living the gospel as well. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, Paul gives these words to Timothy. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. This is to be the character of the one presenting the sermon. That he truly give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. As Timothy applied these words to himself, his progress would be evident in the way that he presented himself. Not just in the pulpit, but in the way that he presented his life. We are an example to those who believe, to those who do not believe. We need to be a proper example of a Christian. Also considered is the presentation itself. Is the sermon preached with passion and desire for the souls of its hearers? Is it delivered with confidence and boldness? Confidence in God. Boldness to speak His truth. All of these things we consider in determining what a great sermon is. Let's turn our attention to the scriptures. Let's turn our attention to the greatest sermon on God. It wasn't long. It it wasn't the 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 most Meaningful as far as words were concerned, but what was said was certainly needed. And that's what makes this one of the greatest sermons that we have in Scripture. Let's look first at the setting. Acts chapter 17. We begin by looking at the setting of this particular sermon. It is the city of Athens. It is considered to be the cultural capital of the world. It is the the center of the world in regard to education and learning and almost any subject. In Acts 17 and verse 21, Paul says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were always looking for something new, something uh, interesting, something that they could, could remember and maybe just talk about to other people. That was their desire. Now, as we look at the city of Athens, we find this place to be very religious. The people here are very religious is the way that it is worded in the New King James Version. This also could be a way of, of imparting that they were too superstitious. And certainly we find that they are too superstitious in various ways. One of the ways in which they are too superstitious is that they are, are dedicated to serving the man-made gods and goddesses of the day. They believed in the importance of building temples and monuments to honor these so-called gods. They were drawn to the idea of a god, lowercase g, a god, but instead of worshiping the god of the scriptures, they created many gods for themselves to worship. And you may remember, I remember in my studies in school, of, uh, we went through a lot of the, the different gods and goddesses in which they worshipped. They had a, a god for everything, basically. 
And they would build these monuments and these temples and things of that nature, things that we have evidence of even today in honor of these gods that they had made for themselves, that they had set up for themselves. And as we look at this particular sermon, Paul will bring to their attention the one true God, the God that they truly do not know. And being so superstitious and and, and, and wanting to make sure that they didn't leave any out. They left out the true God. The God that we all know or should know and serve today. We come to the Areopagus. Also referred to as Mars Hill. A hill that is named after one of, of the particular gods that they serve. I don't advocate using it all the time, but I do think Wikipedia had a very good explanation of what the Areopagus is for us that would not know otherwise. The Areopagus is a prominent rock outcropping located northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. Its English name is the late Latin composite form of the Greek name Areos Pegos. Translated, Hill of Ares. In classical times, it was the location of a court, also often called the Areopagus, that tried cases of deliberate homicide, wounding in religious matters, and as well as cases involving arson of olive trees. Ares was supposed to have been tried by the gods on the Areopagus for the murder of Poseidon's son. So as we look at the Areopagus, as we look at what is known as Mars Hill, we find that it is a form of court, a meeting of the minds, as you might put it, the great religious minds of the day. The court was formed of two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans' primary goal was seeking pleasure, and the Stoics believed all of life was determined by fate. Paul spoke the greatest sermon on God to the greatest minds, not to know Him. Those who should know Him, but do not. Let's look at the preacher, Paul. Paul was once himself religiously misguided until he was confronted by Christ himself. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Acts 9, beginning with verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that, he found, so that if he found any of who, any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, once dedicated to destroying the church, 
was purposed by God for his service. When presented with the gospel, he was willingly obedient to it. We read in Acts 22, verses 12 through 16, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, going back to verses 20 and 21, immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? He thought he was doing right. He thought he was doing what God wanted. But he found out that he was working contrary to God's will instead. But he was willing to change his life. And he did. And we find him here preaching the greatest sermon on God. Now an apostle of Jesus Christ, chosen by him, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he determines to present under the religious council the basic fundamentals of God and his kingdom. His motivation. What brought him here? What brought him to this point in time? What brought him to to this particular place? Pick up reading in Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers And in the marketplace, daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Basically because they didn't know this God that he preached. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul's love for the lost brought him to this court where he would try to convince these religiously inclined leaders of the one true God. He saw what they were doing. He saw how they lived. He saw that they were without God and he wanted them to know God. These things were all very new to them.
the sermon. As we look at the sermon itself, we begin reading in verse 22 of Acts 17. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Paul begins with a a memorable illustration, an example, a statue of their own making. There are many things that we can use for the subject of a sermon to, to introduce a sermon. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's using an illustration, something that they know, and using it to proclaim unto them the God that they do not know. I've often heard in our preaching school classes, teachers say that that whenever you you study with someone, whenever you talk to someone, you have to begin where they are. And you begin presenting the scriptures from where they are. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's taking them from the point where they are. They are are worshiping a God they do not even know because they're, they're so afraid of Of leaving one out. He says. This God that you don't know. Is the God that I serve. He's taking them from where they are. And imparting to them knowledge of God himself. In verse 24 of Acts 17. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. This is so new to them because they have have spent their life building temples, building statues, and, and, and trying to honor these gods that they have made. And he says, the God of heaven is not like that. The God of heaven is not like any God that you have. He made the world. He doesn't need us to make things for him. He's made everything. It was contrary to their own beliefs. that, But this God that, that brought them to... They didn't understand. They were trying to do all of these things for their gods. And they didn't understand the nature of the one true God. Contrary to their own beliefs that brought them to build such great monuments to their gods, God of heaven, who created all things, does not desire these of His worshipers. Consider Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings chapter 8, Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. We may seek to honor God with the the buildings and things of, uh, of this world. 
God can't be contained because He has created all of them. Solomon, even in building the temple, realized this fundamental fact that God cannot be contained in these buildings. No matter how majestic, no matter how big they be, The God of heaven was much different than the gods that they had created for themselves. In verse 26 of Acts 17, And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him Though He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Paul appeals to the writings of some of their own in trying to convince them. From Ellicott's commentary, the words of a Latin poet possibly known to these present in Acts 17. God permeates all the lands, all tracts of the sea, and the vast heaven. From him all flocks and herds and men and creatures wild draw each apart. Their subtle lie, to him they all return. Even some of their own poets had declared God unto them. But they didn't recognize him. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. In other words, He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And He is always present everywhere. Everything that their gods were not. God is eternal. Whereas their gods had been formed by the imagination and the workings of men, the God that we serve is eternal. He was before us. He is after us. He is all time. Acts 17 and verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Something that that we noticed last week was judgment. A separation of the sheep and the goats as it is referred to in Matthew 25. 
If we fail to serve the God of heaven, if we fail to know the God whom we should serve, where does that leave us when we face judgment? He has given us His Son to to die for us and for our sins so that we might be brought near to Him, so that we might be reconciled unto Him. He has given us His Word. He has given us every ability to know who He is. If we fail to know Him, where does that leave us in judgment? Paul proclaimed the greatest sermon on God that we have recorded in Scripture. But what of the response to this sermon? Was it like in the day of Pentecost when Peter preached unto the Jews and 3,000 souls plus were, were saved, were brought to obedience? What was the response to Paul's sermon on Mars Hill? Verse 32 of Acts 17. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. These few were convinced. They were convicted in heart. While the majority of them were not, some did believe. Among those specifically mentioned are Dionysius, And Damaris. All present had been presented with the truth. And now made the decision within themselves to either accept it or reject it. Unfortunately, the majority were too proud to humble themselves before God. Proud of what they had accomplished. Proud of of their own greatness before these people. They were considered the, the greatest religious minds among them. Maybe these are the reasons. Nothing is stated specifically, but maybe these are the reasons in which they did not accept Paul's teachings. They did not accept the God of heaven that he presented unto them. The greatest sermon on God only convinced some of them. Only convinced a few of who God really is. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. How many people were saved because of his preaching? Himself and his family. About eight souls were gathered into the ark with the animals. And were saved through the water. Even some of the greatest preachers may not be the most successful in terms of numbers. But do numbers really matter? 
souls matter to God, however many or however few they be. We don't preach for the masses. We preach for the few souls that are willing to repent, that are willing to change their lives for God. The greatest sermon on God was was not the the most well-received in regards to the audience. But that's not what determines a great sermon, is it? As we have studied the, the greatest sermon today, have you been convinced? Have you been convinced of the God of heaven. Do you know him? Do you know who he is? Do you know all the things that he has done for you and how he gave his son to die for you? Do you know this God that I'm telling you of today? Maybe it is that you've never obeyed the gospel. Maybe you realize what you need to do. Maybe you've not done it yet. But certainly if there's a way that we can assist you, we want to do that. We'd be glad to do that for you today. Hearing, believing, repentance, confession of faith in Christ, baptism for the remission of sins. These are... Acts of obedience that that lead us into a right relationship with Christ. But it doesn't end with baptism. It is only the beginning of a faithful life in Christ. Maybe you've not lived faithfully. Maybe you need to come back. Maybe you need to ask for prayer on your behalf or for forgiveness for something that you've done that that has shamed the church. We always offer the Lord's invitation. We never know the minds and the hearts of those that are gathered. But you know where you stand in God's sight. And if you are not right with Christ today, if something needs to change, if there is some way that we can help you to make those changes, we would be glad to do so. We give you the opportunity to respond to the Lord's invitation. You need to come. Please come. As together we stand and as we sing.